The Cariega family made a happy home in Seebeck, tucked deep in the woods, not exactly off the grid. The largest port city on the Kitsap Peninsula, Bremerton, was just 15 miles away. Even so, a rural patch in the woods like Seebeck had more trees than people. And if something happened, well, the folks that live out there are used to being on their own. The Carriagas were a blended family. Johnny and Crystal married in 2009. Johnny was known to be resourceful and neighborly, the kind of man that gave the shirt off his back to those in need. And his wife, Crystal, she loved being a mom and a small business owner. Crystal and Johnny were a dynamic duo and with a lot of sweat equity and determination, built two successful local businesses. Crystal's Java Hut alongside Juanito's Taco Shop. Crystal's infectious smile and bubbly personality were known throughout the community. She loved treating customers to their businesses like family. And Crystal's son, Jonathan Higgins, and Johnny's son, Hunter Scott, were both just eight years old when they became stepbrothers. From the beginning, the boys had a deep bond. And by 2017, at 16, Jonathan had grown into a gentle giant with a strong work ethic in school and at his part-time job. But he also loved hanging out with friends and cruising around town in his classic cars. Meantime, 16-year-old Hunter was a prankster, a popular football player who got a kick out of making people laugh. But he was more than a class clown. He loved his family and making people feel special. You could say that Johnny and Crystal were living the American dream, a hardworking, tight-knit family who made sure to carve out time to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Family dinners were a time to unwind and do just that. Johnny loved barbecuing all year round, even when it snowed. And after dinner, the family pitched in to clean dishes and inevitably an impromptu jam session would follow, singing and dancing together, using makeshift kitchen utensils as microphones, they would belt out their favorite tunes together. And if you listen close, you can almost hear them singing, living the dream. That is until January 27th, 2017, when that American dream came crashing down hard. Kids have no order reporting. Oh, my whole family shot me, too. Okay, I, listen. I'm, I'm shot right now. My family who, did it. Who did it? But by the time law enforcement arrived at the Cariega home, it was too late. The bodies of Hunter Scop, Jonathan Higgins, and Crystal Cariega were found. But where was Johnny? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Hey, this is Kim, and I just wanted to spend a quick minute to tell you about some of the amazing folks that we've had an opportunity to work with as we've been doing this podcast, Scene of the Crime. One of them is Allie Beckvold. She's the creative eye behind Allie B Photography. When Carolyn and I had a session with her, it was so much fun. She had such an eye for backgrounds, for the way that we would stand in the photo. We have some great pictures, thanks to Allie. You can find Allie B Photography on Facebook. 
Facebook, and there's a link up on our Facebook page. Give her a call. Get some photos worth hanging on the wall instead of just hanging out in your phone. And thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the scene of the crime. Kids have no one reporting. Oh, my whole family shot me too. What's the address? What's the address? One three four one seven two nine zero Drive West. One three four one seven. One three four one seven two nine zero Drive West. Come now. What, what's the right tonight? You, you said tonight. You said tonight. One three four one seven two nine zero Drive West. Okay. Come to it's, Washington. Okay. I, listen. I'm, dying. Who, I'm shot right now. My family's who, dead. Who did it? Someone told me. There's someone here with the gun. I don't know if you need, you need to come now. How how many people? I don't know, bro. Just fucking come, yo. Where are My you shot? Fucking dead. Come, man. Where are you shot? Um, I'm fucking shot, bro. I don't know where I'm. Oh, Carolyn, you listen to that 911 call, and it makes me think of all the times that. I, you know, working in news, we hear these calls more frequently than we'd probably like to. One criticism that I used to make of 911 operators when I was a scrappy new reporter and, you know, kind of didn't know any better was all those questions that they ask that seem so unimportant. You've got a guy on the phone who said his family's been shot. He's been shot. Please bring me some fucking help. I mean, yeah. you know, he's desperate. And she's there going, so who else is in the house with you? And what's your address again? I mean, it's it almost sounds ridiculous, but there's a reason behind it. And, and, you know, this is something it took me a few years to learn and to figure out. But the reason they ask all those questions is to keep the person on the line, to keep them talking. And they're not asking questions, waiting to dispatch a police officer until they get, you know, finished with this line of questioning, which is kind of what my brain always thought. Um, when yeah, I, mine too. When I was younger, it's like, why are you asking all these questions? Dispatch the police. Dispatch the police. <sighs> they are dispatching the police. These 911 operators are so well trained. They will be on their computer and you can hear her frantically typing away as she's answering this call. They'll be on their computer dispatching police electronically while they're asking the questions, while they're keeping that person on the line. And they'll continue typing in information. So as the officers are driving, rushing to this scene where there's been all these murders, you know, they're getting more and more information that's popping up in their, you know, dashboard computer so that when they arrive, they have as much information as possible so that they can be safe, so that they can help whoever needs help as quickly as possible. Um, but I, I guess I just I wanted to make sure that's clear because I know for so long I had a misconception about those 911 calls. And I think it's important that you bring that up, and I'm glad that you did. The only thing, and I know you'll agree with me on this, is that Hunter had no idea of that. You know, as he's sitting there, right. he's just like desperate. Please let you know. Let me know. That you're sending help, And right? that might be the first thing that they should say is, okay, police are on their way. Yes. While we wait for them, let me ask you these questions. And maybe they should say that. But, and and, and I was but... thinking of that when you were saying that. But then I was like, well, then maybe they think if they don't, if they, if they, if they, if they say, say police are on their way, they might hang up. They might hang up. And, right. that, and, so, and so I think that like when I've done my investigations, uh, you know, watching TV shows, too. You know, they always say one of the tactics is that if they're going to do a call, a death call to let them know that somebody in their family has died, they won't tell them until they get some questions out of them first, because they know once they tell them, they will just 
crumple to the ground and yeah. fall. And so I know that there's things that law enforcement, th- there's reasons behind it. But, it, you know, especially in a case like this where you've got a 16-year-old begging for help, they're in a rural community, I'm sure that help seems so far away. But let's get this episode started by just, I want to say that we are honored to be working with the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office on this case. And it shows a couple of things. Their determination to think outside the box to get that one tip. And that's what this this episode is about. It's not solving the crime, but it's help, it's helping to, to spread the word on it. And maybe we should clarify that a little bit before we dive in here. This case is a little bit different than other cases that we have done in the past in that it's not been solved. They don't even have a suspect at this point. And they wanted to talk to us and come on the podcast because they're hoping that it might help with leads that can lead them to a suspect. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, too, as we dive in deep here with that, I think that investigators across the country are seeing that podcasting isn't just a form of entertainment, but a way to reach people. And they trusted us to help tell the story of the Cariegas because this is, as you said, a very active case. And Kim, this is also our first episode where we are hoping to actually help the victims' families by helping out law enforcement. Um, And that's really, really, that's, you know, our goal with all of these episodes. You know, it's not always easy to do, especially when you have cases that are decades old. But really, I mean, the focus we hope in all these episodes is to not only understand, you know, the the criminal mind or why things happen, but also to help the families in any way that we can so their loved ones are not forgotten and the community remembers and and maybe doesn't make the same mistakes again. That's right. And in one of the interviews with the Kitsap County command staff, you know, he said it takes the public to be involved with keeping the public safety And so we want to do our part here. Another bit of housekeeping before we get to the meat of the story is a special acknowledgement to Q13's David Rose for doing such an amazing job covering this case multiple times. Uh, He's the host of the uh, Washington's Most Wanted, and um, we're going to use a cut from him later on in the episode. But let's get started. So as I mentioned, January 27th, 2017 was just another day for the Cariega family, John and Crystal. Married in 2009, their blended family included the two brothers, Hunter Scott and Jonathan Higgins. And according to Lieutenant Van Giesen from the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office, you know, he says the Cariegas, they lived off the beaten path. Large parcels, heavily wooded, and many of the residential areas are dirt easements from the main road. And that's what it was like at the Tenino Drive West property. That's a dirt road that leads off of Gold Creek Road. And the Cariega residence is about a third of a mile up the hill as you wind up this dirt road to a secluded wooded lot where they had a uh, double wide manufactured home and a separate metal shed that had carports in it and also a uh, living quarters. And then there was a separate outbuilding on the east side of the house. So it's a large lot. You don't have any neighbors that you can see. And it sits above Lake Tahuya. So on that night, there was that desperate 911 call. They didn't know who it was. It was just made from that residence. But really at this time, this isn't a sleepy town, but it is one that is not at all known for the type of violence being described by this caller at 1128 on a Friday night. 
Kids have no order reporting. Oh, my whole family shot me too. What's the address? What's the address? One three four one seven two nine zero driveway. One three four one seven. One three four one seven two nine zero drive west. Come now. What? What's the tonight? You said tonight. You said tonight. Oh, drive west. One three four one seven two nine zero drive west. Okay. Come to Washington. Okay, uh, listen. I'm, dying. Who, I'm shot right now. My family's dead. Who did it? Someone came in. There's someone here with a gun. I don't know if you need, you need a gun now. How, how many people? I don't know, bro. Just fucking come, yo. So initially, the, the call from Hunter says that he had been shot and his whole family was killed and that there's somebody there with a gun. So obviously, they're concerned that this is still an ongoing active situation. So the deputies formed up a team to go up to the residence together. It is amazing how quickly they actually got out to that property. I was curious about how many deputies got there as quickly as they did. As many as five police cars with their lights flashing and at top speed, they got to that scene. But they did wait for others to get there. So they went together as a group, not knowing if the situation was still ongoing or not. Uh, and not knowing how to access or where exactly the house was located on this dirt road. Because you get on this dirt road, there's no street lights. It winds up this hill. The residences are very poorly marked. And, you know, they have a situation where somebody says, I've been shot and my family's dead and they're still here. So that's kind of scary. You know, that long, dark dirt road provides privacy to its owners, but could be a trap for law enforcement. And they're still looking to understand what's going on. It's a very active scene, um, at least from their mind of not knowing what's going on. And remember from our Christmas Carnage episode where they later learned that the shooters were, in fact, laying in Mm -hmm. wait, expecting the police to arrive and planned on shooting and murdering the officers when they got there. Yeah. And it's funny because hindsight, we always say that it's like now that we know what was going on you're like just get there just help help hunter please please but but they don't know anything they're walking in blind and it's so dark out there you know i actually grew up going summers down to my dad's place out in in very near this area and so it's like i know how dark it is i know these roads that you know you don't even see these private driveways it's like all everything looks exactly the same it looks like a hiking trail yeah (laughs) my dad would just turn oh we're here you know so it's kind of like that. And so um, they're going down that road. And uh, the only thing illuminating this darkness is a lone light on one of those outbuildings. The scene is eerily quiet. You know, is the suspect still there? So they get up to the house and uh, initially it's dark. However, there's one light on on the garage that's in front of the house. That's that steel building with the carports that I described. Mm -hmm. That's out in front of the house. That's what they see as they approach. Um, The house is completely dark. There's no noises or anything. The officers and deputies on scene originally see what they think is maybe a bonfire or campfire behind the house. But what they don't realize is that the fire's in the house. Uh, And then when they realize it is in the house, that's when they, uh, aid had already been dispatched because of the nature of the call. 
but that's when fire responded to um, extinguish the flames that were uh, visible on scene to the deputies. So I think they were really confused at first. You know, in, in the, on these types of properties, although it was super late at night, it isn't uncommon to have these huge bonfires in what they call the back 40. And, you know, my dad had his 10 acres. He was building a house out there and he was always burning something. But law enforcement, as Van Giesen said, quickly realized this wasn't a raging campfire. This was someone trying to destroy evidence. And first responders began battling the blaze and realized the significance of Hunter's call, begging law enforcement for help to that remote house just 15 minutes outside of of Bremerton. And I'm sure that, you know, Hunter felt like it was a million miles away. Because as you know, we may get prank calls or false reports of things that aren't happening. And in this case, it was far from that. It was exactly what was happening. At first, the fire damage and smoke made it difficult in the beginning for detectives to fully comprehend the scale of the scene of the crime. Detectives didn't know how many people were in the house, and it took several hours for us to identify that Hunter was one of the deceased in the home, Crystal was one of the deceased in the home, and Jonathan. So Hunter's call, though, said his whole family was dead. And as the they fully investigated the house and found the bodies of Hunter, Jonathan, and Crystal, the obvious question was, where was Johnny? Well, and did they know that Hunter was the one who made the call and he was the one who was dead on, on the scene? Um, he said that they worked through the night and that by morning, they pretty much knew that it was the two boys okay. and the mother. I was curious how long they were still looking for that person who made the 911 call. I think that they figured it out pretty soon. They probably didn't release it for a long, for a while, but I think that they knew that it was one of the boys. Um, they probably didn't know who it was or which one it was, right. but what they didn't know was, where's Johnny? With us establishing that John Cariega lived at the house and that a truck was missing, we initially didn't know if he was another victim or if he was responsible for the deaths of the family. So by morning, you know, the hunt was on to find John. To their knowledge, he didn't have a criminal history. And I have to point out the similarities between this case and, and I, the, the Bunker, the bunker story. story. Yes. So similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Bunker story, we had Peter Keller, who murdered his wife and his daughter, mm-hmm. lit their house on fire, and then disappeared and when the cops showed up, they they found the house fire. They had to call the firefighters in. They put out the flames. Then the police went inside and discovered the victims. And we find out in the end it was the husband who killed them. So this is all sounding very familiar. Well, and I think that, you know, the community started thinking, you know, because you know small towns. We've talked about oh, small yeah. towns, too. And so the word was spreading that this horrible tragedy happened. Where's John? You know, I'm sure police, although they are they're not passing judgment. Yeah, he's looking pretty good for this. Like there were just no indications even early on that this was anything other than a loving family. And they said know, the same about said, the Keller ex- family. Yes, exactly. So they were looking for John. To their knowledge, he didn't have a criminal history. There hadn't been any history of calls to that house. And what they knew about the family was that they were beloved in the community. Well, Juanito's Taco Shop and Crystal's Espresso Stand, they're a family-run business, very popular on a main busy stretch of Kitsap Way inside the city of Bremerton. 
it was always busy. They did authentic Mexican tacos like you'd find in San Diego uh, <laughs> at, you know, the hundreds of know, taco stands down there. It's making my mouth water and, thinking about uh, They were very popular. It was very clear early on that they were highly respected and loved in the community. Can I just point out really quick that authentic tacos come from Mexico, not San Diego? <laughs> but go on. <laughs> well, you know what? The thing is, is that they were beloved in the community. Yeah. There was actually, there's even video footage in my research that I saw of them um, having this feed, I think, for the homeless and just really active and involved in the community. But because it's a small rural town, you know, they the community was terrified. You know, was the killer still out there? Detectives continued to uh, process the house, which was an extensive scene because it's an entire residence and we had three murder victims there. Uh, a lot of physical evidence, a lot of damage from the fire. And so a lot of time was spent at the Tenaino Drive West area, checking with neighbors, putting the information about out about Johnny and his truck and trying to figure out exactly where it was. That was the focus of the first 24 hours. An agonizing two days passed before they would find the answer to that question on Sunday. They found not only Johnny's truck torched at a tree farm near his home, Johnny's body was inside. He'd been shot. His body horribly burned. About noon, one o'clock, when his truck was found uh, burned on the tree farm on Dewata Holly Road. And what we learned through our investigation was that uh, the day before, a caretaker had checked the property, middle of the day, and the truck was not there. So we know that Johnny was not killed and his truck was not set on fire and, and burned on Saturday before the caretaker had checked the property because it wasn't there on Saturday. So that's one of the timelines that we're trying to fill is where was Johnny and where was Johnny's truck between 1130 on Friday night and when it was found uh, Sunday on the tree farm. So they believe that the truck was set on fire there at the tree farm where it sat do they know where he was killed or when he was killed? Or was it hard to tell because of the fire? They haven't released that. And I don't know. They haven't released how um, Crystal and the two boys were murdered. And they're keeping that close. And we talked to Cloyd about our pimp, uh, our detective. pimp detective. Man, he needs to give us some advertising money. We're just like, <laughs> <laughs> but we talked to him about how, why they don't release information and part of it is because they they want to know when the murderer comes in they'll know because they'll know details that no one else could possibly know in this case they basically knew they they released that Johnny had been shot and that um that his body had been burned but we don't know I don't know if they know if he was held kidnapped for two for two days, if he was, you know, they moved his body and then just waited for the heat to. Yeah, maybe he you know, was shot earlier and then a day or two later they moved the truck and the body there or who knows. Yeah, but what they do know at this point is that it is highly unlikely that he would have killed his family and then gone and, you know, shot and killed himself. And then how could he burn himself? You know, how, how could he do that? that? That's impossible. So, at well, I mean seems like highly it would be unlikely. highly <laughs> impossible. So they know it is a quadruple homicide and because of the remoteness of the area they don't have any footage of that tree farm, but they did collect footage of Johnny on Friday night, two and a half hours before his family is murdered. You can 
you see in the video that um, Johnny's buying uh, cigarettes and chatting up store clerks. Like, nothing is out of untoward here. He seems very casual. He's at the local Camp Union grocery store in Seebeck. And this, you know, it's a little convenience store that is the lifeblood of a small community. You know how those are. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, a beacon in a storm. Parks in front of the store, nose in, just outside the front door and goes inside and, and makes a purchase. Another vehicle, a passenger vehicle, pulls into the Camp Union grocery, pulls along what would be the east side of the building, and parks in a stall. Nobody gets out of the car. A few minutes later, that car pulls forward into the front of the Camp Union store and pulls nose in in the front of the store, basically to the east of the main door. And then as Johnny comes out of the store, he backs up and uh, pulls up next to the car that had parked in the front of the store. We can't see, because of the quality of the video, exactly what happens during that contact. And so Johnny's truck leaves eastbound. Then the car that he was door-to-door with pulls out onto Holly Road, also eastbound, but pulls into the church parking lot next door and pulls into a stall and turns its lights off. So, so far we've got at least two pieces of not solid information, but information that they would like to fill in the holes. This is like Mad Libs, right? So we know that there was a vehicle where the driver was talking to Johnny the night of the murders. But we don't know what kind of vehicle. We don't know who was in the vehicle. We also know that... It's a, it's like a two or four door sedan. And we will put the links to this video footage up on our website. But yes, they're looking for that car. They're looking for the person that he talked to because that's the last time that Johnny is seen alive. And that's the other part of the Mad Lib here is what happened in that like 24 to 48 hours between the murders and when Johnny's body was found. So we have uh, this kind of little breadcrumbs of information that are leading us somewhere, but we don't know where yet. And so I guess that's why uh, the sheriff's department really wants to get the word out on this case. And, and maybe somebody saw Johnny during that time period. Maybe somebody, you know, saw this car pull up and can help identify it. Yeah. So their law enforcement are still looking to find that car and the person that Johnny met with in this mysterious meeting. Law enforcement believe that Johnny was the intended victim, although they haven't released a motivation as to why. So not the other three family members, but Johnny was really the one that they were going after? I believe that that's what they they said, that because he was separate from the family, they haven't released any details other than they believe that he was the intended target. It would make sense because if they went to the home killed whoever was there, but he wasn't there. And then they continued looking for him. Like, that would make sense based on the timeline. From what they've released, that's what they've said. But again, law enforcement says there is zero evidence to support that Johnny was anything other than a law-abiding family man. And the same goes for his wife, Crystal, and his two sons. So, Unfortunately, months go by without a suspect until early June 2017, and detectives suddenly, they had been mum for a long time, they release a video of a person of interest. Now, this video was obtained from the Silverdale Target, and that, that date is of the video that it was taken was January 15th, and that's just 12 days before the murders. And investigators, when they released that video, they didn't know who the person of interest was in the video, they didn't know who they were, and they were asking the public's help to help identify this man. Because that person's actions were directly connected to the homicide. That person was identified by the public as Danny Kelly Jr. And at the time, 
he was wearing clothing associated with the Banditos Motorcycle Club. And we know in investigating Mr. Kelly of his close association and membership within the Banditos Motorcycle Club. Okay, we got to talk about the Banditos. But first, I have one more question, and that is, how did they identify somebody from Target weeks earlier as being connected with the crime. That's the thing about this case that's like so maddening. And I know that law enforcement feels probably the same way. They can only release certain details. So they haven't said how they know this person is connected. They just believe they are. Yeah. And that there is a connection between Danny and Johnny that they knew each other, but they haven't released what that relationship is. But basically, they, they released this at that time, though. This is the first time that the investigation brought up the Banditos Motorcycle Club. Banditos Motorcycle Club are a one percenter club, uh, an outlaw motorcycle gang, and they are international. They have national affiliation and then also chapters in smaller groups in different communities. Yeah, back in 2005, I remember there was this big case out in the Seattle area where um, the head of the Washington State Banditos was actually arrested and had a bunch of RICO violations like trafficking firearms and narcotics and stolen property and robbery, extortion, like all these things. He actually went to jail for some time, but but has been released since then. But I was looking up the banditos to see what they've been up to since 2005. <laughs> yeah. And I noticed that just last week in Texas, there was a shootout between the banditos and another motorcycle gang. Four people were shot, one of them killed. Yeah, I mean, it's a. I'd never heard of the Banditos Motorcycle Club, and I think that let's what, call them a gang. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Well, I, I think that you know that's part of the 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 issue with this case too is the fear you know associated of coming forward with the Banditos, what, whatever they, their role, if there was a role, you know, which law enforcement is saying there is, but basically after. The plea for help, they ended up figuring out who, you know, Danny Kelly Jr. was. He's not talking. Um, And then over the next two and a half years, you know, pleas for information from the public continue from law enforcement and the family. Billboards of the family are put up in the community. A task force between the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office and the FBI is still very active on the case. And the Washington's most wanted reward went from $4,000 to $20,000 for information leading to an an arrest. So recently, back to the Banditos connection, uh, near the three-year anniversary of the murders on January 24th, just so just recently, the sheriff's detectives, in conjunction with FBI special agents, they would not reveal a motive for the murders, but are now publicly naming the Banditos uh, that they say are responsible. And they believe that members and associates of the Banditos Motorcycle Club were directly involved in the murders of the Cariega family. But they're not saying how, they're not releasing those details. And I asked Lieutenant Van Giesen about potential witnesses' fear in coming forward with information. And that fear has been explained to us by by witnesses, and it is a real fear. And that's why when we've asked witnesses to come forward, we've also emphasized that you aren't standing alone and you aren't the only one that's telling us what you know. But we need to set this fear aside and hold these people responsible. That's how you basically deal with the fear is by eliminating the dangers that could happen to you by saying something about this. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the crimes that uh, the banditos have been charged with is witness tampering. Really? Yeah. So they do go after witnesses. I mean, not to discourage anyone from coming forward, but but I can understand why there would be a fear. 
I, I would think that in this case, because we have not only the sheriff's department involved, but also the FBI, that if there's someone with information that comes forward, they would be protected. Yeah, I would hope so. I and, mean, and well protected. They'd you know? have to. They'd have to give a a pretty big carrot. You know, to, to well, do the, the cash isn't too bad. <laughs> well, twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, okay. So according to law enforcement, Danny Kelly Jr., the the person of interest on that Target videotape, is still a person of interest, as well as associates of Mr. Kelly, who they say have provided false or misleading statements to investigators, particularly regarding where Johnny's truck and body were found. Witnesses have come forward that saw Johnny's truck and several other vehicles outside the tree farm gate prior to it being burned up and his body being found. So there were additional people and additional vehicles at the tree farm before Johnny's truck and body were found. So we know that that wasn't one person's act. That was several people that were present when that happened. So during the course of my research, I read that there was a latex glove that was found near Johnny's burnt-out truck on that tree farm. Lieutenant Van Giesen wouldn't confirm if this was one of the evidentiary breadcrumbs that led them to believe that this wasn't a random killing of Johnny and his family. What we do know is that the killers didn't act alone that it was a well-thought-out, methodical, and complexly executed murder. So I also asked uh, Lieutenant Van Giesen about Johnny's alleged relationship with the person of interest, Danny Kelly Jr. Well, we know there was a previous relationship. What that relationship looked like, we don't know. Because he hasn't been forthcoming, Danny Kelly. Right. When we've contacted him, he has not cooperated. So there's an interesting detail, Kim, at the uh, crime scene at their home. Some marijuana plants and a large amount of cash were found. Court records say that more than $50,000 was found in a safe under the master bedroom bed and that 7000 was found in a bank bag at a dresser and then 33 mature marijuana plants were found in a garage with 10 grow lights. That's a lot of cash on hand, even though it was very busy for a small business, it sounds like. You're right that a small business of that size wouldn't support that kind of income unless you're keeping your money over a long period of time. And also the size of the marijuana grow that was found on the property wouldn't support that unless you're storing your money over a large period of time. So exactly what role that $50,000 and that $7,000 plays is still to be determined. But it's definitely one of the things that we are looking at. And again, I want to make it very clear, the Cariegas were in compliance with marijuana grow laws. And it isn't a crime to have a lot of money at home. But it is important in the investigation that these items were left untouched by the killers. I was just thinking to have cash in many different places throughout the home that remained there that wasn't taken. That's that's pretty surprising. Well, and I think that, you know, the safe, I think, was under the bed. Right. But, but the the other the, the, money bag? the money bag was in a drawer. And so it just I mean, really if they were goes, looking for cash. Yeah, that would be easy to find. And this wasn't a robbery. I mean, obviously, that would be the first thing that they would have they would have would have spent the time to look to, for that to and, look for that. Yeah, it's kind of low hanging fruit. Now, Kim, this was actually really difficult. I reached out to Hunter's mom, Carly Scopp, and I will tell you, it was one of the most conflicting phone calls I've made when requesting an interview. You know, as reporters, you know, we make these calls to try to get people we make to talk. Many to, uncomfortable phone calls. Yeah, to try to get people. But, but 
I mean, as a mom and my family was around me when I made the call because I reached out to her um, via Facebook Messenger and she got back and said call. And I had already decided, like, I was not going to try to, I just wasn't going to try to sell this. Yeah, Yeah. I had no desire to do that. And, you know, she considered being a part of the podcast, but decided to send a statement instead. And I'm going to read it for you now. It's, quote, I've decided not to take part in an interview. This case has been a living nightmare to our family and friends and will continue to be. I know there are people holding answers to the investigation. I hope and pray my son's 911 call will be answered. I beg for individuals with information to come forward and do what's right. Hunter was a bright, fun-loving child who is missed beyond comprehension. I don't mind if you share these words. I was grateful that she sent us that, but I wanted you to hear her voice. And as I mentioned in the beginning, Q13's David Rose uh, has done an amazing job reporting on this case. He talked with Hunter's mom in an interview, and I wanted you to hear her voice. I can't listen to it because my last words that my son said to me was, I love you, and I can't hear the distress in my son's voice. I just need somebody to come forward. I find it so touching, telling, important that in her statement to us, she said, I'm still hoping that Hunter's 911 call will be answered. Because even though all the first responders showed up as quickly as they did, firefighters, EMS, law enforcement, everybody was there trying to do their best, Because there's been no resolution, there's been no suspect identified, there's been no charges filed, she still doesn't feel that his call has been answered. You know, it hasn't been answered, but what's really incredible about Hunter and, you know, not and Jonathan, I'm sure, was an amazing kid, too. But we're talking about him specifically because he made that call and because he was able to make that call and you know, because the fire was raging or was going when when they arrived and more evidence would have been destroyed. And so although at this point, Hunter's call has not been answered in terms of getting justice for the victims and their families, you know, Hunter making that call, getting them to that scene, putting out that fire, you know, they, they have gotten a lot of evidence from that scene that hopefully they'll be able to use, you know, later on at some point. But back to Hunter's mom, you know, the keen in her voice is unbearable. And it is for the victims' families that the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office says they keep working this case. The surviving family members have been suffering for three years, and the investigators feel that. We're motivated and want to seek justice for them and for the rest of the community because they deserve answers. Um, We may never know the why. But the family deserves their day in court. The family deserves to see some conclusion to this. And most importantly, they need to see people that were responsible, held responsible. Hopefully, you know, this podcast will help spread the word. There's been so many, you know, and this is where media does a great job when they are able to get the word out. All of the coverage that this quadruple homicide has garnered, you know, has helped in this case. I mean, I I feel like... I feel good about being a part of that. And, and so we will have all of the information that you need on our website, the task force, where you can contact them. I also hope that people will share this story, this podcast with family and friends across the country. 
because the Bandidos are, as we heard, an international biker gang. But we know for a fact that the Washington State Club and the club that is in Texas have strong ties. So it could even be that someone in another state might have some information that can somehow illuminate what happened in the case here in Washington. So I, I just I really hope that people will will hear this and share it as much as possible, because the more people that hear it, the more likely it's going to land in the right ears that might have that little piece of information that's going to break it all open. Yeah. Another, you know, another tragedy to befall that family as if the quadruple homicide didn't already rock the family to its knees. One of Johnny's other sons in an unrelated car accident that had nothing to do with this case a year after the murders, 20-year-old Joseph Cariega, he was a passenger in a car when the person he was driving with crashed it, you know, an accident at a high rate of speed. And one of the things I want to give Joseph kind of the last word in the podcast, at the Cariega's funeral, Johnny's son Joseph said this about his dad, quote, my dad was my hero. There wasn't ever a problem he couldn't fix. He taught me everything I know from working on cars to opening doors for ladies. And I just think that it's such a tragedy. So we will have all of the information on the task force where if you have any tips and and again, law enforcement, and this is so powerful, they always say, don't worry about if you don't think this tip means anything or you're just being silly or, you know, if somebody said they were somewhere and it just didn't seem right, but you don't want to make a big deal. Let them decide. Let law enforcement decide if it's a big deal or not. You know, if you feel anything, the hairs on the back of your neck, something didn't feel right, give the task force investigators a call. We will have all their information on our website and a reminder that $20,000 cash reward remains to be offered for information that leads to an arrest and charges. And you can remain anonymous. Kim, what do we have coming up for next week? Well, you've heard of the Green River Killer. You've heard of Ted Bundy. But I'm going to bet you've never heard the name Gary Jean Grant. Our favorite pimp detective, Cloyd Steiger, calls Gary Jean Grant Seattle's forgotten serial killer. He's not forgotten anymore. We'll have that story next time. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>